Welcome to the Redeemer East Harlem podcast. We pray this message leads you both to know and show the love of Christ in all areas of life. We will now dive into our scripture reading, followed by this week's message. chapter 18, verses 1 through 3, and verses 9 through 15, and chapter 21, verse 7. The Lord appeared to Abraham near the great trees of Mamre, while he was sitting at the entrance to his tent in the heat of the day. Abraham looked up and saw three men standing nearby. When he saw them, he hurried from the entrance of his tent to meet them and bowed low to the ground. He said, If I have found favor in your eyes, my Lord, do not pass your servant by. Where is your wife, Sarah? They asked him. There, in the tent, he said. Then one of them said, I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, will have a son. Now Sarah was listening at the entrance to the tent, which was behind him. Abraham and Sarah were already very old, and Sarah was past the age of childbearing. So Sarah laughed to herself as she thought, After I am worn out and my Lord is old, will I now have this pleasure? Then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh and say, will I really have a child now that I am old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? I will return to you at the appointed time next year and Sarah will have a son. Sarah was afraid, so she lied and said, I did not laugh, but he said, yes, you did laugh. And she added, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children? Yet I have borne him a son in his old age. Uh, let me start us off today just with a question. When you think about God, and maybe you're here and you're like, I don't really, it's been a long time since I've thought about God. Um, but when you think about God, uh, what kind of like facial expression do you imagine when you think about God? I think it's actually a pretty important question. I would say most of us, when we think about the facial uh, expression of God, you know, it might be kind of neutral, certainly serious. Uh, for some, there might even be kind of a low-grade disapproval at all times, um, kind of a certain distance about him, the, the, the transcendence of God. Uh, but what I want us to consider today, based on our text, is to consider that possibly one of the most faithful ways that we can imagine the face of God is to imagine him laughing. Uh, when you think about human community, the moments where our souls are knit together in maybe some of the most profound ways are moments where we laugh together. And today I want us to consider that laughter by looking at an old woman, Sarah, who's lost laughter in her life. So this is the first sermon in a series that we're calling The Matriarchs where we are looking at the women in the line of Jesus and we're asking what can we learn about the kingdom of God because the kingdom of God advances oftentimes not through mighty acts, not through the spectacular, not through the th- ways of the world, uh, the ways of power and influence and domination and conquest. But the kingdom of God is unique because it oftentimes moves forward through the, qu- the quiet acts of the overlooked, the dismissed, the forgotten, the unseen, the underestimated. And I think oftentimes in a male-dominated world, the kingdom of God has moved forward because of the faithfulness of women. And the story of Jesus' line uh, highlights that in powerful ways. So let's look at the laughter of Sarah and ask us, what does it teach us about the ways of God? So first we'll look at the loss of laughter here in Sarah's life. 
Secondly, we'll consider the return of laughter. And then lastly, the redemption of laughter. Okay. So first, the loss of laughter. Uh, we know, need to know a little bit more of the story of Abraham and Sarah uh, before we get to this point. Some of you are going to be familiar with it, but others of you who might be newer to the faith or just exploring, this is kind of a new story. But uh, Abraham and Sarah were actually fairly wealthy. Uh, they were a fairly wealthy family. Uh, so they are portrayed in scriptures almost as like a Bedouin chieftain or a Bedouin king. So by the time God meets Abraham, he's actually fairly well off. A relatively powerful person in the region. Uh, a lot of wealth. If you look at the amount of possessions and livestock that he said to possess by the time uh, God encounters him, uh, he's a fairly affluent, well-off, successful, powerful person. And then God meets him and God tells him, Abraham, I want you to go to the place where I will show you and gives no direction beyond that. And you can imagine Abraham maybe saying, okay, God, I'll go. So where should I go? Which direction? So I'll, I'll just show you. Just start moving. And the moment Abraham responds to the call of God, the moment he steps out in faith, not knowing what direction he's supposed to step out into, the moment he follows God's call, that's when all the troubles begin in his life. Now, that might sound strange to you, especially if you're relatively new to, you know, religion or Christianity or whatever the case might be, that you might think that if I get religion, my life should get better. Uh, that if I get God into my life, my life should be e easier. There should be a comfort that comes along with that. But actually, the strange thing, if you read the Bible carefully, is that you don't oftentimes see that in the Bible. That the call to love God and neighbor is a profoundly difficult journey from the love of self. And we see that in all these stories time and time and time again. So if you go back to Abraham, if you go all the way back to chapter 12, you may know the story, but Abraham was promised three things very clearly from God. He was promised to, have, to, get, to receive a great name, so reputation, identity that was known by many. He was also promised a great land, a place where his people could settle. And then thirdly, he was also promised that God would make him into a great nation. So those are the promises in Genesis 12. The chapters that follow Genesis 12 on, Genesis 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, right until we get here, every single one of those promises proceeds to fail in the life of Abraham. So Genesis chapter 12, Abraham's supposed to go into Egypt and because he's afraid of what the Pharaoh might do because Sarah is so beautiful. Do you remember what Abraham does? Abraham takes on a false name. So this promise of a great name, of a great identity, of a great reputation, immediately that promise gets undermined because Abraham takes upon a false, himself a false name, a false identity, and a false reputation to save his own skin. This promise of a great name is threatened right from the beginning. The chapter right after that, you might know the story, Abraham gets into conflict with his nephew Lot. And do you remember how they settled this conflict? They take the land that God had promised to Abraham and they divide it between the two of them. And now that second promise of a land that his people will be able to settle into, that promise is threatened almost immediately as well. And by the time we get to here, verse chapter 16, 17, and 18, we hear that God, remember, promised Abraham to be a great nation, a family that exceeds the number that has ever been seen before. And by the time we get to verse 18, we learn that Sarah is barren. And this promise that Abraham would one day would be a great nation, it's a promise that feels like it's broken and it's a final thread. It's snapped. It's snapped. 
for Abraham and Sarah. And so there's these systematic threats to the promises that God gives. There's troubles at every turn, but this last seemingly broken promise of God was shattering in particular for Sarah. If you know women during this time, their entire value was oftentimes summed up in their ability to produce children, to produce heirs to the patriarchs. And here's Sarah, her entire sense of worth wrapped up in this one capability. After 25 years, God had promised that a child was coming year after year, time and time again. She senses God saying, no, I promise, no, I promise, it's coming, I promise, I promise. And year after crushing year of disappointment. And we see Sarah here laughing at God as a way to protect herself from trusting him, as a way to protect herself from hoping again. So by the time we meet her in these pages, uh, we see Sarah with a profound sense of spiritual bitterness that has seeped into the water of her soul. We see a little bit of that in verse 12, where the text says, uh, Sarah, so Sarah laughed to herself, to herself saying, after I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? That Hebrew word that's translated worn out is also in other places translated useless or worthless. So after I've become useless and worthless, you can sense that Sarah has internalized her own anger, has internalized this shame. That she feels like she's wasted her entire life waiting on what feels like a stupid promise. Maybe even embarrassed at the prior sincerity of her faith, here is an old woman for whom laughter has left her life. Can anyone here relate to Sarah? If you can relate to Sarah, say amen. amen. All right, say it again. Say amen. amen. To know what it's like for laughter to leave your life, your hopes crushed, a disappointment in life that you realize, I'm never going to get that back. Or maybe prayers offered with complete sincerity. Prayers gone crushingly unanswered. That to walk with God means to know what it's like to follow the shepherd into the valley of the shadow of death. That to walk with God is to know that there are times where laughter can leave entirely. There's a great book that was recently made into a movie by the Japanese theolo- uh, novelist Shusaku Endo. He's often described as the Grand Green of Japan. And his wrote book they wrote uh, called Silence. And it's ultimately an entire meditation on the silence of God in the face of suffering. Uh, and here's a quote that I will never forget. will always kind of stay with my soul. He says that one of his characters says this, I cannot bear the monotonous sound of the dark sea gnawing at the shore. Behind the depressing silence of this sea is the silence of God. The feeling that while men raise their voices in anguish, God remains with folded arms, silent. It's a crushing reality, isn't it? And if we're honest with ourselves as Christians, you've either gone through that or I promise you, you will go through that. That time is coming. What to do with the silence of God? What to do when the laughter is lost? If you know what that's like, or maybe you're going through that right now, you have a companion on your journey in Sarah. 
She knows where you sit, where you sit. And so let's continue to follow her on this journey. So that's the loss of laughter. Uh, secondly, let's look at the return of laughter. Let me re- reread to you chapter 18, verses 9 through 15, just so you get a little of the story again. Uh, three men have come to visit Abraham, and they're offering these men hospitality. In verse 9, they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, she's in the tent. The Lord said, one of these men is identified here as the Lord, which is interesting. I will surely return to you about this time next year, and Sarah, your wife, shall have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door behind him. Now Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in years. The way of women had ceased to be with Sarah. So Sarah laughed to herself, saying, After I'm worn out and my Lord is old, shall I have this pleasure? The Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh and say, Shall I indeed bear a child now that I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a, shall have a son. But Sarah denied it, or the NIV, which we have read. So she lied, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Now, here's what I love about this entire exchange. Uh, So laughter has left this woman's life. And when laughter finally returns, what kind of laughter comes back for her? It's the laughter of cynicism. She laughs at God. She laughs at the promises of God. So I love the honesty of that because what you don't have is you don't have a fairy tale saying, look, there can be hard times in your life, but just trust in Jesus and he will help you to laugh again. But the story says hard times will come and sometimes when laughter comes back, the laughter comes back as a form of mocking the promises of God. And actually what's interesting is that this entire section in Genesis, if you were to read, go back to, to chapter 17, and read it all the way to chapter 21, the entire section is about the return of laughter in the people of God. But every single time, the return of laughter is a laughter of mockery. So chapter 17, Abraham laughs, but he laughs at this same promise that God gives. We're too old. And so he laughs at the promise of God. Here, chapter 18, Sarah laughs. And she says, now that I'm this old, we'll have this pleasure. And she laughs at God. Chapter 21, Ishmael who's Isaac's older half-brother, laughs, mocking Isaac, that all along we see the return of laughter, but it's one long story of the laughter of people scoffing at the promises of God. And what I love is in the midst of all of this mocking laughter, how does God respond? How would you respond if you were God? How would you respond if you were a parent? Let's be honest. I would come down with fury. You know, I would come down and say, do you know who I am? You would expect God to come down and say, how dare you laugh at my, at my promises, to come down in fire and earthquake and whirlwind and darkness and dread. So you'd expect God to come down with the fullness of judgment. And if you know the story, he's actually already done that. He met Abraham with darkness and dread and fire and smoke. He comes down and he meets Abraham in all the fullness of his power. But here with Sarah, he comes back to meet her in the midst of her cynical laughter. And when God comes down, how does he show up to Sarah? He comes in the form of friends. He comes in the form of a stranger in the need of hospitality. He comes to Sarah in the midst of her disappointment and anger and resentment and bitterness, in the midst of her cynical laughter. 
he comes to join her as a vulnerable guest in need of a host in order to break bread with her. Do you sense the gentleness of the approach of God? And again, you might be here today and you're feeling that same sense of distance from God. You're feeling that same sense of disappointment, a farness from God. Is it possible that God is seeking to meet you with this kind of gentleness in the midst of all of this mocking laughter to come to you as a friend, as a guest in need of hospitality, come to you with that kind of gentleness? There's another detail in here that I want to point out before we move on. But Robert Alter was a Jewish commentator on the Hebrew Scriptures. He, he notices this detail. He says, this is the only announcement of a promised child that's not given to the mother. So every time there's a child promised by God, God always goes to the mother and says, you will be with child, you will be with child. And so you can kind of quickly go through your Rolodex, maybe your Bible stories, and we see that time and time again. This is the only time that God comes to a mother, comes to announce the birth of a promised child and doesn't come to the mother. And you say, well, why is that? And I think what the author of this text is saying is that Sarah was so far from God. Sarah had pushed herself so far from who God was that God knew that he had to come with gentle, small steps in order to approach her with love. And actually, the scene is great, isn't it? It's beautiful. It captures that beautifully because this entire time, what do you have? You have Abraham going out to meet the guests. Abraham telling Sarah, who's behind the curtain, behind uh, doing work to prepare a meal. So she's back here behind the curtain, and here's Abraham with the guests. Now, if this were a play... You'd have the three guests and Abraham on the stage, and off stage maybe is Sarah. Maybe you hear the sounds of the preparation of the meal, but here's Sarah off stage, far from God, disengaged from these messengers, keeping her distance, her safe distance, for fear of having to hope again. And it's not until the end where God asks that very uncomfortable question, why did Sarah laugh? Is anything too hard for me? And he says, at this appointed time, I shall, she shall have a son. And then what does Sarah do? Here's where she finally comes out on stage. And what are her first words when she finally comes out on stage? She lies. That she appears, she's drawn out of hiding. God draws her out, but even in drawing her out, even in that mini step, she still has her swords up, protecting herself from this God. I love the gentleness with which God meets us in our doubt. How is God trying to draw you out of hiding this morning? Or maybe even before that, where are the swords that you have drawn in your life? to protect yourself maybe from the disappointment, to protect yourself from hoping, from trusting, from believing. Where is God seeking to draw you out? And even if he draws you out and the first thing you do is lie to God, he's like, okay, come. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, some of you may know, it's a famous passage. Some people call it the hall of faith. 
And it's basically the author of Hebrews going through all the great saints in the story of God's redemption. And the sentences all begin, by faith, Abraham, by faith, Noah, by faith, by faith, by faith. And so it's kind of this great cloud of some of the, the greatest saints that have followed the God of the Bible over the millennia. You know what I love about Hebrews chapter 11? You know who shows up in there? Sarah, one of two women, Sarah and Rahab the prostitute. And you know what it says of Sarah? This is Hebrews chapter 11, verse 11. It says, By faith even Sarah, who was past childbearing age, was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promises. Did she? Did she consider him faithful who had made the promises? It doesn't take a lot of faith for God to use that. The faith the side of a mustard seed. Here is Jesus laughing at, the, or here's Jesus, here's Sarah laughing at the promises. Here's Sarah lying. Here's Sarah protecting herself from God. And yet, by the time you get to Hebrews 11, God has considered whatever small, shaking, fragile, tentative, fearful step of faith she took. It says she was enabled to bear children because she considered him faithful who had made the promise. Someone who had laughed at God it is astounding. I love a quote from this author, Frederick Beatner, who wrote a great little book called Telling the Truth. The Gospel is Tragedy, Comedy, and Fairy Tale. It's a beautiful little book, but he says this. Maybe the most interesting part of all of it is that far from getting angry at Sarah for laughing, God told her that when the baby was born, he wanted them to name him Isaac, which in Hebrew means laughter. So you can say that God not only tolerated their laughter, but blessed it, and in a sense joined in it himself, which makes it a very special laughter indeed, God and man laughing together. It is perhaps as important to look closely into the laughter of Sarah as it is important to look closely into the tears of Jesus. See, the Bible has a beautifully complex understanding of the relationship between doubt and faith. That the best kind of faith incorporates what I'll call honest doubt. Now, there's a dishonest kind of a doubt that has already decided, I don't want there to be a God. I don't want there to be someone who can tell me what to do with my life. I don't want there to be someone who can, who can save me or not. There's a dishonest kind of doubt, but there's an honest kind of doubt that the most robust kind of biblical faith is not opposed to that kind of doubt. It actually incorporates it. That actually the kind of faith that we see throughout the Bible is a faith that has been tested through the crucible of our own doubts and has come out on the other side and has still said, this is a God that you can trust. Do you know what that's like? Do you know that kind of faith? And so that's the return of laughter. So we've looked at the loss of laughter. We've considered the return of laughter here with Sarah Let's look finally at the redemption of laughter. <clears throat> Let's learn to turn to chapter 21 here. And let me read to you actually all of verses 1 through 7. Because here I think is where we see the redemption of laughter occur. The Lord visited Sarah as he, said, uh, as he had said. And the Lord said to Sarah as he had promised. And Sarah conceived and bore Abraham a son in his old age at the time which God had spoken to him. Abraham called the name of his son who was born to him, whom Sarah bore Isaac. And Abraham circumcised his son Isaac when he was eight days old, and God, as God commanded him. Abraham was a hundred years old when his son Isaac was born to him. And Sarah said, God has made laughter for me. 
Everyone who hears will laugh over me. And she said, who, have, uh, who would have said to Abraham that Sarah would nurse children, yet I have born to him a son in his old age? I love verse 6 where it says, God has made laughter for me, and everyone who hears will laugh over me. See, for Sarah, the return of laughter was as much of a miracle as the birth of a son. And I love the translation that everyone will laugh over me. Because the Hebrew is not clear. They say, is Sarah saying, God has given me laughter, now everyone will laugh at me? Or is she saying, everyone will laugh with me? In the translation, everyone will laugh over me, I think captures both of those beautifully, that we're being invited into the laughter of Sarah, that this is the redemption of laughter in the life of Sarah. So here's Frederick Buechner again. He says, the laughter of Sarah at the birth of their son does not eliminate her darkness because through the long childish years of the past, darkness has already taken its toll. In the long years that lie ahead, there will be darkness for them still. But with their laughter, something new breaks into their darkness, something so unexpected and preposterous and glad that they can only laugh at it in astonishment. And what was astonishing, gratuitous, hilarious was, of course, the grace of God. What could they do but laugh at the preposterousness of it? And they laughed until the tears <clears throat> ran down their cheeks. Then the Bible sometimes laughter is the only response to the newness of the gift of God's grace. That there's a hilarity and uproariousness to the fact that God's grace intervenes, that God's grace interrupts in the most unexpected ways. Now here's one of the things that we learn uh, about biblical faith, I believe that what we see in the Bible time and time again is that biblical faith is a comedy. And what I mean by that is this. When you remember Greek tragedies, so if you think back to maybe high school and you read like Oedipus Rex or you read Hamlet, uh, what were the marks of a Greek tragedy? A Greek tragedy was a sense of there was an inevitable fate that no matter how much the protagonist struggled against the fate, the fate could not be avoided. So there's an inevitability to tragedy. But comedy, comedy is something radically different. Comedy was the interruption of something unexpected and unforeseeable. It was the intrusion of something from the outside that was completely unexpected. And actually, when you think about comedy, even when you think about jokes, jokes are funny in part because they're unexpected. Okay, so I'm gonna go out on a limb here. I'm not a comedian. But I'm going to tell you a joke. And I told my wife this morning the joke that I was going to tell you. And she was like, oh, honey, please don't. <laughs> but I'm going to go out on a joke. Because I think it illustrates what I'm trying to get at here. So this is my joke. It's one of my favorite jokes. It's called an anti-joke. I just told it to some friends the other week. And the joke is this. Okay, you ready? This might be, this is a risk. Okay, here we go. Uh, the joke is this. What would George Washington do if he were alive today? And the answer is, he would scream and claw at the inside of his coffin. Now, some of you are like, oh, pastor, please don't. But the reason why that joke is so funny to me is because it's utterly unexpected. Like, it's not funny. It's not funny. And yet the unexpectedness of it always makes me laugh. And what we see in the Bible is that when it comes to the grace of God interrupting, the unexpectedness of the grace of God entering in. The unexpectedness of the ways that God interferes and intervenes. 
that there are times where the unexpectedness of God's grace, that the only response is uproarious laughter at the hilarity of God's grace, of why he would do what he has done. You see, religious people, when they think about salvation, they think, well, God should save somebody like me. Or you might not be a religious person. You might be more of a fairly moral person. And if you're a fairly moral person, you might think, well, if there is a God and there's a heaven, I'm probably going to be fine. But a Christian, a Christian, when a Christian thinks about that God has saved me, a Christian laughs at the hilarity of the fact that God in his grace of all people, of all people, will call me to be a Christian. The Christian laughs at the joke that they are, the joke of God's divine grace. Because here's what's interesting. Sarah, this whole section is about the return of laughter in the people of God. In the Gospels, when we look at Jesus, we're told that Jesus weeps a couple of times. We're never told that Jesus laughs. Isaiah the prophet tells us that Jesus was the man of sorrows familiar with grief. Then life of Jesus, we see a man who weeps, who mourns, who laments, who cries out in agony, who experiences God forsakenness. And actually the only laughter that we see recorded in all the Gospels is what? It's the mocking laughter of the crowds, jeering, the jeering of the soldiers at Jesus. And what does Jesus do? In the midst of that mocking laughter, what does Jesus, the man of sorrows, do? Jesus come, comes close as a friend, as a guest, a vulnerable guest in need of hospitality. Jesus comes into all of that uproarious laughter in order to break bread with us so that he, the man of sorrows, could take all of our sorrow, could take all the tragedy that was fated for us, to take all the punishment, to take all the wrath, to take all the suffering, all the sorrows, to take it upon himself, to lay down his life so that our lives could become transformed into comedies all over again. That the resurrection is actually the deep and true comedy of the universe. It is God and the human race laughing together again at the joy of his redemption, at the hilarity of his grace breaking through. Do you know what that's like? Has he done that in your life? Let me close with just this one. It's a longish quote, but I love it because I think it captures the laughter of God that we have in Jesus Christ. Uh, it's written by uh, an Episcopalian priest, uh, a priest by the name of Robert Ferrer Capon. And he invites us to imagine this uh, um, fictional character that he's created. His name is Arthur. And Arthur is, they're uh, talking about uh, the banquet of the righteous and the unrighteous. Okay, so here's the story. Let me just read it to you. Uh, Father Capon says this, The unrighteous are those who go on uh, to insist on showing up at the resurrection with all their record books as if it were an IRS audit. The unrighteous are the idiots who are going to try to talk to Jesus, in, try to talk Jesus into checking his bookkeeping against theirs. 
And do you know what Jesus is going to say to them? What, for example, he will say to his host if he comes to the resurrection with such a request? I think he'll say this. Just forget it, Arthur. I suppose we have those books around here somewhere. And if you're really determined to stand in front of my great white throne and make a fool of yourself, I guess they could be opened. But what will happen will be that while you're busy reading and weeping over everything in those IRS books, I'm going to go and open my other book. It's the book of life. The book that has names in it of everybody I ever drew to myself through my dying and rising. And when I open that book, I'm going to read out to the whole universe every last word that's written there. And you know what's going to be written there? It's just going to be Arthur and nothing else. None of your bad deeds because I erased them all. And none of your good deeds because I wasn't counting them. I just enjoyed them. So what I'll read out, Arthur, will be just Arthur, real loud. And my father will smile and say, hey, Arthur, you're just the way I pictured you. And the universe will giggle and say, that's some Arthur you've got there. But me, I'll just wink at you and say, and say Arthur, come on up here and plunk yourself down by my great white throne. And let's you and me have a good long practice laugh before this party gets so loud we can't even hear how much fun we're having. Friends, if you turn in faith to Jesus Christ, you're invited into the laughter of God where he says, all I'll remember is your name, the name written in my book of life. If you lay down all those other things, lay down the sin, Lay down the rebellion, lay down the pride, lay down all of those things and simply turn in faith to Jesus, the man of sorrows who took the punishment for all of your sins. And the moment you turn in, in faith to him, Jesus, come into my laughter. All I have recorded is your name. And I can't wait to laugh so loud that we're going to forget how much fun we're having. So would you come to him now? Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your love for us. In the midst of all of our sorrow and suffering, you meet us with such gentleness, with such care, with such tenderness. And Lord, we just pray that whatever sorrows we're bringing with us today, whatever distance, whatever bitterness, whatever doubt, whatever cynicism, Lord, we pray that as we bring them to you today, would you meet us right here at this table? And show us that you were willing to have your body broken and your blood poured out so that we might know that we can always draw near to you by faith in Jesus. And so, Lord, would you heal our sorrows and our suffering that as we remember they were all placed upon you, our sin, our evil was placed upon you. And, Lord, as we gather on this table, help us to hear echoes of the laughter of God of that final banquet when we'll be drawn in by name because you've known us by name before the foundations of the earth. Lord, help us to dance at the joy of the kingdom of God. Help us to laugh at ourselves at the hilarity of your grace and help us to go out into this world with the healing laughter of the incredible grace of God wherever you might send us. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Redeemer East Harlem Podcast. For more information on our church, 
and how you can support what God is doing through our church, go to www.reh.nyc.